Thank you. You can be uh, seated. Is truth decided or discovered? I ask my kids this as I'm teaching them. Is truth, do we decide what's true, interpret what's true, or can the truth be discovered? We have a truth that we know inside of us. We, we have this, this sense, it's our conscience about what's right. But we also have a truth that we would prefer. We prefer a truth. And these things are happening all together at the same time. Will you pray with me now as we dive into what is truth? Pray with me. Father, we need your help. Will you separate out our preference for what is true, for what is actually true? God, help me as, as I speak today. Help me to uh, not be boring, to be uh, present under your leadership. Help the hearts that are here to be ready to receive uh, your truth. God, we love you, and it's your name we pray. Amen. Our series we've titled Real Jesus because we don't merely want to look at the Gospels and say, what happened? We don't merely want to say, what is Jesus's teaching, though this is important for us. We want to zoom in and look at the character and nature of Jesus. Hebrews says that Jesus is the exact imprint of the nature of God. And so Jesus himself says, I and the Father are one, and if you want to know God, know me. If you know me, you know the Father. So when we look at Jesus, we get to know who is God. He is the best available example that we have of who God is. And so real Jesus, we get to find out today because Jesus is on trial and they're asking the question, Jesus, who are you really? Today we find out. Today's the trial. Trial should be about truth, right? Finding the truth, investigating the truth, getting eyewitness accounts to determine what is true. Not this trial. See, this trial had a predetermined truth. And they were just looking for an excuse to kill Jesus because that's what they really wanted to do. To set the stage for what's happening here in this moment, Jesus has just been arrested. Peter, in this very moment, Jesus' most desperate hour, is betrayed by his close friend, denied. We learned last week that Jesus restores that relationship. He knows that we're going to fail him, that we're going to struggle in our following after him, that he's always going to be with us and walking with us. He's always with us and we're never alone. But he was alone. 
He was alone in this moment. As he's facing trial, he's arrested and he's brought in at night. See, this is a sham of a trial. He's arrested at night, beaten, mocked, mistreated, tried in secret, asking nothing but questions of trap and trick. They had their verdict before the trial even began. If you have your Bibles, I want you to take a look at Luke 22. And we're in verse 63. It's going to be on the screens for you if you don't. It says, now the men were holding Jesus in custody. They were mocking him as they beat him. They aren't merely mocking him. They're beating him. Beating him brutally. And as if that weren't enough, they were playing a little blind man's bluff with a twist. It's not a tag version you played in school. Verse 64 says, they, always, or they also blindfolded him and kept asking him, prophesy, who is it that struck you? So that they put a blindfold on him. There's a group of them. Maybe they introduced themselves so that they knew, they knew their name. I'm, I'm Ralph. This is Ted. This is Harry. Uh, and uh, they put a blindfold on him, and then they just start pounding on him. Who hit you that time, Jesus? You're a prophet, right? You can tell. You're, you're God, right? You can tell who hit you. Come on, Jesus. Let's play. How humiliating. They're mocking. The reality is, I believe they, they actually might have thought that Jesus was who he says he is. I, I think they had a sneaking suspicion. I, I think kind of like in the schoolyard, we, we tend to uh, fear the thing that might actually be true. Uh, and, and, and we're kind of defending or trying to put away or knock down that which we're most afraid of. I believe they would be pretty afraid if it turns out he was actually God. And so they're kind of waiting in the way that most fistfights go. You throw the punch and you're waiting. You just throw one punch and you wait. What's, what's, what's the next thing that's going to happen? I think there might have been a, a sense of like, is he, is he going to do something? What, was, what could be known about Jesus, he made known. There were miracles. People saw them. He said who he is, Jesus said who he is, in front of everyone, in public places. There was nothing secret or hidden back. His miracles were in front of people. There was uh, evidences uh, that this guy was special. They knew it. They had to be a little bit afraid. And as they're beating him, they might have been waiting at any moment that he would break off his shackles and, and, and rule. And he had the ability to do so. Luke even points out in, sex, in, in verse 65, and, and they, uh, they said many other things against him, blaspheming him. My mom, she watches these sermons uh, on the live stream, and I, you know, I usually check in with her. How, was, how did it go, mom? What'd you think? She said, you should smile more, honey. Seems like you don't ever smile. 
Apparently, I have an intense look on my face when I'm very passionate about something. It, it looks like, uh, I don't know, intense or angry. Uh, she's not the only one who's told me that. But I, I read this, and I'm like, how do you smile? This is awful. This is our Jesus. And Luke points out the, the blaspheming. You can't blaspheme a person. You can only blaspheme God. The things they are saying to Jesus, Luke is so enraged by as he looks at historically what's happening. They're doing this to God. After being beaten throughout the night, they bring him in front of a trial. In verse 66, it says, When day came, the assembly of the elders of the people gathered together, both chief priests and scribes, and they led him away to their council. And they said, If you are the Christ, tell us. But he said to them, If I tell you, you will not believe. And if I ask you, you will not answer. Okay, so the scene as I picture it, you got, you know, the the little panel of judges or whatever standing up high and looking down at Jesus. He's like been awake all night. He's beaten. He's, he's probably bloodied and swollen, maybe a little disoriented, uh, like been beaten and mocked all night long. And he's standing and he's, you know, receiving the questions of the trial. And, 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 and they're up there and they're saying, we just need him to say one thing. Just say one thing. Give us a reason to kill you, Jesus. We want you to... They, just, they wanted him dead. They had already decided they wanted to kill him. This was, we just need, him, we just need to be justified. In, we, we need to be, give us a reason, Jesus, to do what we really want to do. See, like, they're, they're religious people, right? So they have to be good. They can't just kill somebody, Right? You can't just kill somebody. Even though that's in their heart, anger, hatred, all of those things in his heart, I want Jesus dead, I want him out of here. In fact, why did they want them out? Why did they want Jesus out? Well, if Jesus is who he said he is, they don't have a job anymore. As priests, they would have had power, prestige, position, wealth, Roman oppression has taken away all of the political power in Israel, but they still had a system of religious rule that Rome allowed them to have and even reinforced. Notice these are Roman guards that are Roman soldiers that are doing the dirty work, right? Because they're religious people. We don't hit people. Our guards do that, right? They can't do bad things because they're good people. They want them dead. They have to find a justifiable reason to kill him. They had to kill him because he was a threat to the power that they had. They had power over the people. The system of temple sacrifice goes away because Jesus is the sacrifice to end all sacrifice. He died once for all sin. They knew there was a prophesied Messiah, a priest in the order of Melchizedek that would rule forever. If one priest rules forever, the priests are out of a job. They don't have their power anymore. 
They don't have their religious rule anymore. They don't get to be the one who says what's right and wrong anymore. They need Jesus dead because the only other alternative is that he is who he says he is and we have to rightly worship him and let him take his position, his rightful position. So they're faced with a decision, a dilemma, as they see it. They need Jesus to say something. Just say something. Say something that'll, that'll incriminate himself. So they say, just, just say plainly, are you the Christ? Jesus' answer, he says, if I tell you, you will not believe. And if I ask you, you will not answer. What is, he, what, is he, what is he pointing out? He's saying, you've already made a decision in your mind. If I tell you I'm the Christ, you've already decided you're not going to believe. You want to kill me. And if I ask you who I am, though you know who I am, because I've shown it to you, you can feel it, you can sense it, you, you see who I am. But you won't say it. You won't admit it. You've already decided in your heart you want to kill me. So they go on. We need Jesus to say something. Give us some kind of ammunition here, Jesus. So in verse uh, 69, Jesus does give them something. He says, but from now on, the Son of Man shall be seated at the right hand of the power of God. So he just said, son of man, which is how he referred to himself. Jesus called himself the son of man, which was to let people know a couple of things. Number one, I'm fully human. And number two, I'm the guy prophesied about that was going to be a man that is somehow equal with God, that is somehow going to be the savior of humanity, prophesied to rule and reign. I'm him. I'm that guy. But he kind of says it in a clever way, right? He doesn't say, uh, I'm the Christ. He says, the Son of Man, speaking about himself in third person, shall be seated on the right hand of the power of God. So, meaning, I will ascend to my throne to rule and to judge with God, equal with God. You're judging me? One day, I'll be judging you. Jesus had a view of the eternal, a view of what is coming, a view of what he was there to do. He was there to die in order to take his rightful position on the throne as king. Now, for them, they said, aha, there it is. But they want to get him. They want to twist it. So they said, are you the son of God then? Stop talking in third person. Are you the son of God? And he said, you say that I am. Which, th there's some discussion about what exactly Jesus is doing here. I mean, is it... Uh, 
are you saying you are the son of God? And Jesus says, ha, you said you're the son of God. You said it, you said the words. There, there is some discussion about the words that he used, that he used the, the I am in the, um, the way that God says I am. He, that's one of the names of God, God is I am. But to them, to them, however he said it or whatever the context of what it was, it, 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 it could also have been like, uh, you, you said it, you got it, that's it, You're, that, that's it, right? Bingo. It, it's kind of a way of affirming what they said without necessarily saying it outright. But, but for them, and I think for us, that's enough. That's enough. He's making the claim. Then they said, the reaction in verse 71, then they said, what further testimony do we need? We have heard it ourselves from his own lips. He said it. In their minds, regardless of the context or discussion or the translation of how it goes, in their minds, he said it. He said the words that they needed to say in order to be deserving of death, and it was blasphemy. He said, I am the Son of God. I'm God himself. I'm, I, am, I am the Christ, the Messiah. He makes his claim. And for them, that's blasphemy. Punishable by death. Here's the problem. Roman rule would not have allowed uh, any, any uh, occupied nation uh, from enacting a death penalty. Rome carries out all, uh, all law and, and consequence and all of those things, okay? So they have to, and, and we'll see this next week, they have to present this testimony and present it to Pilate, the, the, the Roman ruler, with a Roman crime. And so what they say is it's treason because he's claiming to be king. So here's what's funny about that. They rightly interpret his claim as Messiah means that he will take his rightful position as king. In the, in the charge of treason, they actually admit, acknowledge that Jesus is the Messiah. Because his claim to be Messiah for them is blasphemy, but they see that the eventual rise is his position as king, and that's a threat to Roman rule. Now, we understand what happened, okay? But how do we apply this? How do we take this and apply it to our lives? I want you to take a look at Romans 1. This is kind of interesting. Uh, I, I actually just thought of this this morning in the way that the, the, the soldiers uh, in, 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 in this, this uh, Sanhedrin, these, these religious rulers, kind of interpreted the events here. In Romans 1, verse 19, okay, I'm going to read the whole section, 19 to 22. I find this interesting. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. 
for his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. So I read that, and it's almost like, wait, is Paul talking about this exact situation? Because it fits this perfect, this situation perfect, right? Like, though what could be known about God was plain to them, they did not see him as God. They didn't honor him as God. And in fact, their foolish hearts were darkened to such an extent that they wanted to kill. And claiming to be wise, they became fools. Well, no, Paul is not writing about this situation. Though it fits that situation, Paul is talking about humanity. All of humanity can see, can feel, can sense, can know what can be known about God is clear to them. It's the truth, but it's not their preferred truth. They don't want it to be true. Because if God is who he says he is, it means that I'm not on the throne. It means that I'm not ruling. It means that I'm not in charge. If God is who he says he is, if I acknowledge that, my life has to change. I have to stop going after the things I was going after. So humanity actually is wrestling with, is struggling with this idea that uh, God's right there, but, uh, and I can see it, I can sense it, but I've just got to come up with some other idea. We are in the middle of a grand social experiment. I don't know if you realize it through academia and this high-level thinking, claiming to be wise. We are becoming fools as a society. It began uh, some 60 or 70 years ago. We are on a quest to find morality without God. Certainly, humans can be good. We can do this. We can fix things. But first, we have to get rid of religion and God, right? And so through uh, higher levels of, of learning and, and education and, and thoughts about the brain and thoughts about science, and I'm not discounting the things that we've discovered. It's just the motivation behind it was to always explain away God. We've got to be able to do this without God, though what can be known about God is very plain to us. If we acknowledge God, we have to put him in his rightful place as, as rule, as king, as, as, as God. So if we're going to be on the throne, we have to figure this out without God. My two-year-old daughter, because she's still in that stage of development, she's egocentric and can't imagine the fact that, uh, that I'm not currently feeling, sensing, and experiencing everything that she's feeling. And so she does this thing uh, earlier, I'd say when, uh, like more when she was 18 months. If she wanted to do something bad, she'd close her eyes, right? Because if she can't see me, then I can't see her. <laughs> Right? And she actually thinks that way. That's actually in her, in her brain, developmentally. If 
if her eyes are closed, I can't see her. She's imagining me away so that she can do the very thing she wants to do. Now what she does, because she can talk now and, and more articulate, she says, don't look at me. <laughs> I want you to look in the other direction. See, I've got some sinning I want to do, Dad, and I want you to not look. Because if you're looking at me, I have to do business with the way that that makes me feel. We do this as humanity. Certainly for those who have yet to put their faith in Jesus, you can remember a time when you found the truth about God to be inconvenient. It meant your life had to change. Though at some point you relented, you gave in and you said, okay, I, I give up. And you started following God and your life changed in better, in, a, in really good ways. The things you were holding onto, you wanted to let go of. You just couldn't imagine how that was gonna happen. As Christians, since you have put your faith in God, we actually still do this, unfortunately. Though we know Jesus is supposed to rule in our hearts because all of the things he said is true, though we feel it, we've seen it, we've experienced it, we still try to take the position of rule in our own hearts. We prefer to be in charge. And that plays out in the way that I parent when my kids are not behaving in the way that I want and I get rough with them and I, I, I raise my voice because I want to be in control of the way that they are behaving. It plays out in my marriage in the way that I would fight to win an argument because I want to be king and in, in rule. And if I were to acknowledge that Jesus was supposed to be in that moment with me, I would, I would be behaving very differently because he would be ruling and I would be in a position of submission and obedience. So I have to blindfold Jesus so that he can't see what I'm doing right now. And somehow, like my two-year-old, I start to think of, I start to think that he can't see. Jesus knew who was punching him. Not only did he know their name, but he knew their, their story. He knew why they were afraid. He knew each one of the guys that were trying him he knew their motivation to kill them. Though he rightly could step onto that throne and rule and take his rightful position right then and there, he had an important mission. And it was to save the very guys who were beating him. He knew that they would not get off of their thrones and allow Jesus to take his rightful position as king in their lives. That it would only be allowing them to beat, to mock, to mistreat, to take on all of the shame. all the way to the cross, and he would have to die. Dying would be the only way 
that their hearts could ever be changed. That the Holy Spirit would ever change their hearts of stone that would transform their futile thinking into hearts of flesh that they could see rightly and that they would discover truth. It would only be the work of the Holy Spirit to change and transform their hearts because their minds were made up. They had a truth that they preferred. Jesus had the right to be in position of judge, though he placed himself in their hands on mission to die. Jesus is the better judge. You will experience judgment. Our culture is trying to define what is right and wrong. They'll tell you about whether you're right or wrong in your viewpoint and your, your understanding. But we have a choice to place Jesus on the throne in our life, not only daily, but in every single one of those situations to say, I'm putting myself in front of the one true, right, and only good judge who doesn't take the opportunity to cancel or to kill, but instead bears my sin, bears my shame, dies for me so that I can have life and relationship with him. We have an opportunity every single week to...